Welcome to the Sendcast. My name is Dale Pickles and I'm the host of the Sendcast. I'm also the Managing Director of B Squared, a company who supports schools to show small steps of progress. Each week on the podcast, we're talking about a topic within the world of special educational needs, something to help us learn and support children with SEND. You could be a parent or relative, a teacher, teaching assistant, SENCO, senior leader, advisor, or someone else who works with children with SEM. There is so much to do and so much to learn. The Sencast is here to help you broaden your knowledge around a range of topics within the world of special needs. In this episode, our guest, Ang Harrod Welsh, has joined me to talk about using questions to extend verbal reasoning. Verbal reasoning is understanding what has been said. You can use questions to help support a pupil's understanding, but not all questions are equal, as Ang Harrod will explain. Ang Harrod has worked with a number of organisations, including Nason and ourselves at B-Square, and she also speaks at various events. Before we get started, do you know what we do at B-Squared? Have you even heard of B-Squared? B-Squared was started around 25 years ago by my mum. She always struggled to show progress for pupils with special needs, so she created something that would keep her going until someone else made something she could buy. That never happened, so she started selling what she created. And five years later, my dad realised it would be even better as a piece of software and created Connecting Steps, our assessment software. We are currently on version 4 and somewhere around 4,000 schools have purchased Connecting Step for showing progress for their pupils with special needs. Over the last 25 years, we've been keeping up with all the government changes and creating new frameworks based on the government guidance. So if you still haven't found your replacement to P-levels, have a look at our website to see what we have done. We've also started to create frameworks for other areas and earlier this year, we launched our communication interaction framework to help schools work closer with their speech and language therapists. The framework supports pupils who communicate vocally as well as with AAC. You can find out more by visiting the B-Squared website. I'll put a link in the show notes to take you to the correct page. If you're interested in what B-Squared do and our frameworks, I'll also put a link in the show notes to book a free online meeting where I can show you what we do and how this can support your school. Now on with the podcast. Showing Harrod. Hi. So I'm going to give a very basic muggle level explanation <laughs> of verbal reasoning. Mm-hmm. And probably wrong at higher levels. Ang Harris also already confirmed this, but it's quite <laughs> Verbal reasoning is similar to comprehension. It is what phonology is to phonics. It's those foundations because of comprehension of the real world. So if a pupil is struggling to understand the world around them or make predictions, this is going to have a huge impact on their development, not just in literacy. And a pupil needs to be able to observe, then compare, and then use expressive language. And that is all part of verbal reasoning. So there's a lot going on. There's a lot, lot to unpick. And questions and asking those questions are going to be key to this development. And now Ang Harrod is going to correct me and give a much better explanation. <laughs> okay, well, verbal reasoning is quite a big area. And I'm just going to sort of talk about one aspect of it today. And the way I think about verbal reasoning really is the ability to use language to solve problems and answer questions. So that's about what you said, which is having kind of the world knowledge about things. And then it's the ability to put that cognitive knowledge that you've got into language and and sort of use it. And if you can't do that, if you can't answer questions of increasing difficulty using language at a simple level in your own language, then you're not going to be able to carry those skills over into literacy, which is what you're saying. So, you know, if you've got a child who can't use language to organise their response to a question, then they're not going to be able to look at a text and use questions to demonstrate their knowledge of that. So that's why verbal reasoning is important. So there's quite a few different components to verbal reasoning. There's the business of actually the cognitive demands of the question, that's one aspect, and then the cognitive demands of organising a linguistic response to that question is sort of another part of it. That's why it's quite complicated. (laughs) Yes. In my research, doing lots of reading, it was like almost people started falling over what it was. Yes. People almost avoided saying what it was. Yes. And if it makes you feel better, I actually Googled what it was to try and come up with a nice definition for you. So I'm a speech therapist and I had to Google it to find a nice, neat, (laughs) neat definition. So you're not alone. You can bring a lot of skills into verbal reasoning or you might define them elsewhere. But the important thing is that you know that asking children questions demands things of them cognitively, both in the processing of that question and in their response to it and that's all you really need to know and that yeah. some questions are harder than others yeah so there's a lot of there's a lot as you said it's the the input the processing of it then the output again yes yes so they have to have the world knowledge and then they have to have the language to express that world knowledge so there's quite a lot of different skills there which is why it's so hard for children with SLCN yes 
So with questioning, verbal reasoning, mm. I suppose part of that questioning is helping to realise there are questions in what they're doing. Yeah. Themselves. Yeah. So you're asking children to reflect, aren't you, on what they know and what they don't know. So absolutely. So that's why we use questions so much in education, isn't it, to, to, to find out how much children know, but also to get them to reflect on what they do and don't know. Yeah. That's important. So you've got a blank language of levels. Yes. Is that correct term? That's, yeah. So yeah, speech therapists use something called the blank language model, which is based on some research by somebody called blank from the 70s. And But I always like to tell people if I'm teaching it that it's the blank model because you get a lot of blank faces when you explain it to people. <laughs> but, I thought um, it was the blank because literally in the thing it says, give me the blank. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> no, it was devised by, based on some research by a researcher called Blank in the 70s. And basically it's a model that we use to think about how hard certain types of questions are and the language demands that they place on a child. So, And it's broken down, broadly speaking, into four levels. So I thought I'd give you a bit of a whistle-stop tour of those four levels, really. So I I train people in this quite a lot, and this always generates a lot of discussion because verbal reasoning is a really tricky area. So I'm not really intending that people come out of the podcast kind of understanding everything about the blank language model, but you get the general idea of the demands that at different levels of the model, if that's all right. Yeah, so Ang Harrod has given me a lovely sheet all about the uh, blank language levels, and that will be going up in the show notes later. So don't have to write every notes down is there's a lovely printout, which will give out a document for everyone to use yeah. and have to remember everything Ang Harrod says. And I think the thing to think about with the blank language model is it's not about you internalizing all the little examples. It's about getting the sort of general principle of which questions are easier than others. So level one of the model is basically the, the theme around that is naming. So that's focusing on the whole object. And those tend to be the questions that as a speech and language therapist, I don't feel are terribly helpful for children's language development. So that's things like, what's this? Real classic question we ask children to try and get them to talk to us. What's this? And then, of course, they don't necessarily know the answer or can't generate a response. Those are some of the simplest questions. And also getting them to match things. So, you know, giving them one thing and getting them to find another one that's the same. So a lot of the time there, that is almost comprehending that world around them. Yeah, but getting to, on a cognitive level, they are just making observations about whole objects basically they, yeah. and they're not reflecting on things they know about those objects or what they're for or how they're used in the world they're just literally i know the label for that thing yes so that's your level one so yeah you know you can imagine that if you're asking those questions then they don't generate a whole lot of discussion they're quite kind of closed down so either children know the answers or they don't so that's why they're not so good for language development really yeah so and you, you can you know children either know what an orange is or they don't <laughs> there's uh, there's not much more to it so they don't demand a lot of your verbal reasoning and then your level two questions are more about seeing if children have an understanding of all the things about that object in the world so that's things like do they understand what things do you know can you find me the one that you'd use to cut something for example can you find me the one that you drive so that on a cognitive level, that's asking children to recognise, oh, uh, there's a car and I know something about that car. Yeah. So that question is a bit more intellectually demanding than just saying, where's the car? Yeah. And also things like sorting and categorising, which we do quite a lot with young children. So, you know, do you understand which things all go into the same category? So that would be questions like, find me the one that's a fruit, find me the one that's a vehicle, putting those things together. So cognitively, you can see that's quite a lot more demanding than just knowing the label for something. Yeah, there's a lot of sorting, processing. There is all that knowledge they would have. Yes, there's quite a lot of world knowledge in there. And you often find children with SLCN struggling at this level already. Yeah. So we often have to, these are quite common therapy targets. You'll see a lot of categorizing and thinking about function in, in therapy targets. And then things like sentence completion. So, you know, like a closed sentence where you say, I don't know, the this is the man who is, and then there's a blank and they have to fill it in. So again, it's getting them to reflect on a picture or an object and then, what they know about that picture okay cool. <laughs> this is an interesting experience because obviously we're recording um the sound but i can see your face and i'm trying to monitor how, how confusing i'm being <laughs> you're not being confusing i just don't want to put my foot in it and come out looking like <laughs> this is quite a technical area of speech therapy and i did think twice about making a podcast out of it but i think it's really useful for people to know about and then the other thing you get at level two is children have having information in front of them. So whether that's like objects on the table or uh, maybe they've just looked at a book with you 
and you can ask who, what and where questions. So, you know, who is doing this? Where is the teddy in the picture? That kind of thing. So who, what and where questions are at level two, but only when the information is still in front of them. So it's still quite closed. Yes. Yes. Still. So you're still asking children to reflect on things right in front of them right now, basically. But you're looking at more aspects of those things. So people are often confused in terms of SLCN that a child might be able to answer who, what and where questions in one context, but not in another. And that's to do it might be to do with, you know, your level two blank level questions that information is right in front of you and all you have to do is answer the question about the thing in front of you whereas once that immediate context is removed if I'm asking you who what and where questions about you know something that happened yesterday that's more cognitively demanding because that's like starting a story writing so what did you do yesterday where did you go who were you with look at you going that's it frankly whereas if you ask them about a book who went to the shop and they're looking at the book going oh Mr Brown or whatever Yes. You can actually talk about the different things that happen in the book, whereas when you ask them to think back to yesterday and ask the same questions, different level. Absolutely. Yeah, that's important for people to understand. So, And if you think about you know, the natural context in which children learn these things, we'd often start with reading them a story and talking about it as a basis for answering asking questions. So the information is right there. And then when they're a little bit older, they start to put whole narratives together and hope to answer questions about quite a wide range of things. So, you know, it's about the immediacy of that information in front of them, really. Yeah. So if you've got a child who seems to struggle with who, what and where questions, it's worth thinking about that on a practical level. You know, actually, can they do it if the information's in front of them? Is it when I'm asking them for that in a slightly more abstract context? Is that the issue? Yes. And going back to a previous podcast we did is having those verbal prompts. Absolutely. Yes, yes. So, yeah, there's lots of really good resources out there for thinking about who, what and where questions for sure. So, yeah, so a lot of our children with SLCM will need much more verbal, visual, sorry, uh, sort of scaffolding to learn those questions and also learn to be able to answer them in a range of different contexts. So, yeah, that's uh, there's loads of different. I will point people to a few resources to get them started at the end. But, yeah, so that's level two. And then level three, and again, a lot of people don't necessarily think of these as verbal reasoning skills, but it's more like if I had to kind of sum it up in one word, the questions that demand retelling and narrative. It's exactly what you were just saying about, you know, asking children about what happened yesterday. So, and again, you can kind of, it kind of makes sense that asking a child about an aspect of an object in front of them is easier at level two than kind of asking them about a whole sequence of things and remembering all that information. It kind of feels easier somehow. I hope it does anyway. It does to me. So the kind of skills you see at level three are things like if you've told a child a story and then you get them to retell that story or describing things that happened, exactly what you were just saying. So tell me about what happened yesterday. So that ability to put things in a sequence and use language to do it. So a lot of our children with SLCN struggle. They get the vocab. They might get the, you know, I understand that a knife is for cutting. But then if you ask them to kind of reason out a whole narrative with a sequence of steps about a knife and what might have happened with it, that's a whole different ballgame. And a lot of children really struggle at that ability to build a narrative and link their ideas together using language. Yeah. So, so it's things like if you've told a story and then you expect them to kind of pull out the main point from that story and kind of summarise it, that would be a level three sort of demand. Also, the ability to define what words mean, quite actually quite a complicated skill when you stop to think about it. And a really important skill at level three is your is the ability to make predictions. So what might happen next? And again, you can feel how much world knowledge that pulls on. Yeah. You know, uh, to to not only recognise what's happening, but all the myriad things that may or may not happen as a result of that, and how likely they are, is quite a lot of cognitive processing. Yeah. So a lot of children really struggle with that, especially if you know if they're if they're not children who, for whatever reason, because of their learning needs, are not noticing much of what's going on around them. They're not going to make such accurate predictions about what happens next and equally predicting what people are feeling as well is also a level three demand so it's interesting you sort of said picking out the most or the significant aspect or the biggest part of their day it's like mm. being able to identify that within context is quite yeah. interesting it's a really yeah it's a really tricky and it's a tricky social skill too isn't it so yeah. we all, all know small children who do that thing are like either they'll tell you nothing when you ask them what they did or they give you every detail and they pull in things that happened last week and, you know, these kind of stories that go on for like 10 minutes and you're trying to lob, lob some kind of conversational <laughs> hook back in to try and get yourself back on track. So, yeah, those are really complex skills. There's a reason children take a long time to develop those skills. Well, sometimes when you know the answer because you've talked to a parent, 
And they said, mm. oh, yeah, we went to the cinema yesterday. And we watched this and they loved it. And you know, oh, so what did you do yesterday? And they tell you everything but the cinema <laughs> trip. Really? Literally, yeah. I played with my dolly and almost like this real love, like going, you go to the cinema? <gasps> yes. And it's like, off yeah. you go again. But it's, yeah, yeah. It's, it's working out and remembering and linking it all together. Yes, because how would a child, know, you know, in all the events that happen in their day, how would a child understand that the important part of that was where they went to the cinema and you weren't interested in the other bits? That's yes. really demanding skill. Because for them, you know? playing with the dollies could have been the best bit. Yeah, absolutely. So everything's equally weighted in the child's mind, you know. So, um, you know, absolutely. So that ability to kind of pull out what was the main thing and summarising that is actually quite hard. And yet it's quite young children can do it in typical development, really. So it just goes to show really in typical development how amazing children are. I suppose that idea of what's important comes from having the conversations and the questions. So if you yeah. start telling me about what you had for dinner and I don't ask you a single question, mm. then you went, I went to the beach. I go, oh, which beach did you go to? That's signifying to you where my interests are. Absolutely. So next yeah. time you have that conversation, don't mention the food, focus on the beach. Yeah. So there's, you know, apart from the linguistic demands of the, these verbal reasoning tasks, you're bringing in a lot of a world knowledge. You know, you can't answer questions about a beach if you've never been to a beach, but also that the social skills part of that of understanding what the other person's interested in. Yeah. So that's why these things are so hard, you know, and that's why you haven't had found a nice, neat definition of verbal reasoning because <laughs> they pull in all these other things. You yes. know, because obviously a speech therapist focuses on the verbal part of that, but actually, do they have the actual cognitive skills underlying? Is it just that they can't express those things verbally, but they've got the ideas, or is it that actually they don't have the world knowledge that is the foundation for being able to use their language skills? Tangent in my head. Is there a link in terms of deprivation in this area, a limited experience? Yeah, definitely. So we know that a lot of children, we know that just language in general, we know that children in poorer areas with, who've had less life experience have poorer language in general. So even beneath the level of verbal reasoning, we know that children from areas with lower social economic status will have less vocabulary. You know, they're, they're going to be behind in their language skills, even if they haven't got sort of underlying specific language difficulty. So the knock on effect of that is that it will affect their verbal reasoning. So absolutely, children need experience to learn. So I work with some children who have spent a lot of their early life in hospital. And so they've been deprived in that sense. And this, there are significant effects for their language development. And it's not because they have necessarily always a language problem. It's just that without a basis of experience, it's very hard to attach verbal labels to things. Yeah, so I know there's a local secondary school to me, they spent some of their pupil premium money because they've realised that certain pupils hadn't really left the local area. Mm. Windsor isn't miles away, so they actually used some of their pupil premium money to take the children to Windsor. We're literally talking in a car, it's 20 minutes. Yeah. But they had never been there, never left the area. So for them, mm. at a secondary school level, the effect that had on them was huge because it's mm. a whole range of experience completely different being there the experience of going there eating at all this stuff the school did mm. huge and it was had a huge impact on them because they're able to actually then reflect and see things differently mm. and where they only saw things a certain way they went somewhere else and just had a different experience different town and obviously then it can have a big impact on their language because they're sort of now comparing what they had before to what they just experienced yeah um, not in a better or worse but in a different way Yes, absolutely. And just expanding their understanding of a concept, you know, if you've got a concept, but your understanding was quite limited because you haven't had, I don't know, say the word is spicy. You know, if you haven't eaten spicy food, how do you expand your knowledge of that concept? Yes. Do we mean and do we mean like, you know, do people mean heat or do they mean like chili kind of spicy yes. and all those things? If we don't, you know, it's just a word until we flesh out that word with our life experiences. And we know that children you know that basis of sensory experience at an early years level we do talk a lot about messy play because actually without sensory experiences it's very hard for you to kind of hook a verbal label on and learn a word for something if you don't have a basis of sensory experience for it and we do have children who for various reasons haven't had those sensory experiences and sometimes they don't learn the verbal labels for things but sometimes they do learn them but they don't have a fleshed out sense of what they mean so people are sort of tricked into by the fact that they can use those verbal labels that they have an understanding of them but actually that that understanding is very thin, you know, and so they don't necessarily understand them in all contexts, for example. They wouldn't necessarily use that word that they've learned. You know, it's just a bit of a splinter skill in their minds. It's just kind of a drift because it hasn't got that sensory experience behind it. I suppose when it comes to simple reading is 
and literally it's, it's huge as i think about it always is if you're reading a famous five book they're going on holiday and the excitement mm. of getting there but you've never been in a car waiting five hours to get somewhere <laughs> yeah you'll never understand the joy of the m5 on a summer holiday <laughs> and there are lots of people going yes yes other people going oh, no idea and it is absolutely experience gives you there's an emotional link so when you're reading a book mm. And they sort of like, why were they frustrated? It's because they're on the M5 on the way to Cornwall and they know there's four hours ahead of them. It's not written <laughs> in the book. No. It's kind of inferred. And if you have that experience, then that's what you'll get from the book. Yeah. If you haven't got that experience, you'll get nothing. So yes, yes. all those experiences that you have in your life is really going to help understand the world, understand, go back to what people are saying to you, inferring lots of knowledge, mm. but it's not said. Mm-hmm. It's all part of this world of verbal reasoning isn't it absolutely yeah and going back to books you make a good point about books I mean books are a really important way for us to experience things that we can't experience firsthand you know there's all there's lots of things that you and I wouldn't have done I haven't been on a safari but I know about safaris because I read about them in a book maybe but actually if you are from an environment that doesn't have a lot of books that's another source of information upon which you might have built your world knowledge and cognitive skills and the ability to verbally reason things it's another source of information that's gone so that's you know that's why books are so important for language because they're such an important way to give children experiences that maybe we we can't give them in real life so you know books and life experiences absolutely are really important for for language development yeah so yeah it's it's just i look i look back and i sit there and i'm looking at these going i struggled with some of these sorts of questions when i was young (laughs) didn't read didn't do that okay Mm. that's explaining a lot now in my head (laughs) interesting yeah yeah so you can see how quickly these demands pile up yes you know so I've got some information in a minute about kind of what typical development of these looks like and actually you can start to understand if children there's a lot of focus on giving children vocabulary that almost that sort of level one type information you know do you know the names of these things and we know a lot of children are going to school without that level of information actually there are an awful lot of children in typical development going to school who are at least at level three and so you can see the gap already you know by the time they've gone to school in in the in the verbal reasoning and as you go through school the demands on your verbal reasoning just kind of rise exponentially really so if you're struggling with the earlier parts of that then it's going to be very difficult to demonstrate the skills and that you know the great sadness is that the ability to explain yourself verbally doesn't necessarily mean you don't have the cognitive process but it does mean you can't demonstrate it yes i should say lots of things you think back to like give me the orange you know what Mm. orange is if you had lots of fruit you know the orange yeah but also if i then said give me the mango Mm. but you don't know what a mango is but you recognize an orange an apple and a banana you know the one you don't know is going to be the mango yes Yes, yes. So there's a whole load of stuff when you when you have more experience, more knowledge, it gives you more ability to answer the questions you don't know. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. That's a really good point. And that yeah, that combination of knowledge and language lets you do a lot of problem solving, you know, lets you work things out by inference. But if you don't have the vocabulary, if you, you know, haven't been exposed to those kind of questions and the cognitive processes that go with them, you're not going to be able to work that stuff out. Yes. It's a really good example. I love, I love learning new things. I love these points. <laughs> so that's level three. So now level three is very much focused on sort of narrative and sequencing skills. And then level four is, is the big one in my mind. So that's you can basically summarise that as why questions. So if anybody's ever asked, uh, tried to answer a why question from a child, they'll know that why questions are really hard. And yet we ask them to children all the time. And then we're slightly baffled when they can't respond to us. So... Why questions are really, really difficult. So the kinds of things I'm talking about are justifying your predictions. So at level three, you might say, what's going to happen next? At level four, you'd say, why are you saying that's going to happen next? What's your thought process? So that to me already feels quite difficult. Identifying the cause of something. So that's like being able to look at a picture and I don't know, maybe something smashed on the floor and somebody says, what made that smash on the floor? And you can draw an inference from the information you've got visually and then answer that question. And again, the more knowledge you have, the more experience you have, the easier that's going to be. So if you've got a cat, there's mm. a picture of a cat on the table, you'll know that cats like pushing things off. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Never, never seen one of those videos or never had a cat. Yeah. And you'll look at that cat and you will not draw anything from it. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it's always fascinating doing these kinds of tasks with children because children, you know, they might come up with all sorts of really good answers that aren't, wouldn't be an adult answer because we've got more world knowledge. But when faced with that demand, we'll try and answer it with the knowledge they've got. So they give you all sorts of uh, interesting answers to that kind of question. But the fact that they're trying tells you something about they understood the question and they understand the cognitive skills behind that question. So you'll then be able to identify, okay, so they understood the question, they're being able to process what's in front of them. But actually, this is so, again, the question helps you find out where that issue is. Yes, absolutely, because it tells you, you know, you were your answer, you were thinking about the cats, they told you something else, and that, that tells you, yes, they understood the linguistic demands of the question, but they don't know much about cats. Okay, well, now I know where to teach them. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why they're important. Basically, problem problem solving using language is a level four sort of activity, and particularly solving a problem with somebody else's point of view. That's really difficult. And again, bringing in the social part of understanding what somebody else might be thinking about a situation. I suppose at this point, you've also got the feelings coming in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. So, yeah. So at level three, you might predict what somebody's feeling. At level four, you might be saying, why are you thinking that? Yeah. So, you know, they think they're feeling sad because such and such happened. And, and you know, if you just think about your typically average, typically developing child, they, that's really hard, isn't it? They really struggle to say, I'm thinking this and feeling this, but you, you might be feeling something else. Yes. So that's, you know. It's like snatching toys off someone while well, I was playing with it first yeah absolutely <laughs> so those are difficult cognitive skills and to, let's be fair they're quite difficult cognitive skills for a lot of adults too aren't they the ability to see somebody else's point of view and how they might be thinking about something is actually quite challenging for a lot of us there's no ch- it's no wonder really it's difficult for children so yeah level four questions basically demand you be able to justify what you're saying about something making inferences going back to making inferences making inferences at a much more sort of overt level i'm think i think this happened because yeah something so level three you are making inferences because you're making a prediction but you're not having to justify that prediction yeah whereas at level four you're using your language to explain why you think that might be the case okay and also this is slightly random because it doesn't really fit with the rest of the model but it is what the model says the ability to kind of define compound words so you know sand castle why is it called a sand castle well because it's a castle made of sand (laughs) so doesn't necessarily feel like it belongs with some of the other things in the theme but that does go in at level four and that now that fits in the orphanological awareness a little bit so you know that ability to understand there are component parts of words and that they might mean something in their own right so you know these things do fit together yes this whole thing of sometimes a sandcastle is basically that's what it's made of and other times it's based on where it is or the use of it and so there's a whole lot of knowledge and experience goes into that absolutely yeah absolutely so you know if you if you think about the blank language model as a as a way of gauging world knowledge you know the if you think about your exposure to multisyllabic words, you your exposure to multisyllabic words has taught you that there are bits within those words that have an individual meaning. So much like you've you know you've had enough exposure to world knowledge to draw inferences and explain them, you've had enough exposure to words and text to be able to pull out components of meaning within those words. If that makes sense. Yeah. So yeah, so level four is truly hard, and yet we spend a lot of time asking children those questions particularly when they've done something wrong. So we spend a lot of children at times saying, children, why did you do that? And if you've ever asked a child why they did something, then you'll know that you're probably not going to get any sensible response. And yet we do it anyway. <laughs> yes. Why did you hit Jack? <laughs> I didn't. <laughs> yeah, they might say I didn't. Or, I mean, do, do they, you know, do they know in the moment? Do we, as I, Again, I, I think adults sometimes place demands on children that we can't do ourselves. If somebody says, why did you do that? Do you always truly know why you were doing it in the moment anyway? <laughs> but also, often you know fully well why the child did that. They obviously did Absolutely. that they were angry. Yes. So the question isn't, why did you hit him? It's, what did he do that made you hit him? Absolutely. So sometimes yeah. changing that, because as you said, why is that's a level four question? Yes. So dropping down to a level three and asking yeah. maybe what happened, tell me, start at the beginning. That's often why. When you ask, why did you, why did you do that? I don't know. Okay, let's start at the beginning. You actually, now I'm looking at your levels, and that makes more yes. sense in my head, is yes. you're dropping down to that level three. And yeah. you might sit there and go, so if you did that, what might he do? And you sit there and realise that actually that that child's reaction is quite logical because that's what they would yeah. do. And then you did the light bulb moment as they realised actually they did something that the other child didn't like. Mm -hmm. They responded and then you respond. So, yes, I'm now actually 
makes so much more sense. Yeah, yeah. So you have to be you have to be careful with those why questions because I mean, like any question, really, speech therapists often talk about not asking too many questions. And it's because a lot of the questions we ask are to make the child repeat something we already know the answer to, whether that's kind of saying, what's this? Or why did you do that? You know, we like you say, we know why they did it a lot of the time. Why we insist on getting children to tell us things that we already know the answers to, you know, that we're not really asking questions to find out it when we do that. So, you know, and that's a habit that a lot of adults have got, is asking questions that are a bit redundant, really. I, th- I think it goes along that day is, if you say something... I did this. It's like admitting it to yourself. So that's kind of probably what we want to hear. We want them to admit they did that. And that way they mm. admit it to themselves and they're going to change. <laughs> we don't. I don't know. That's, that's an, awful, <laughs> it's an awful lot to hang on a question of a it is. <laughs> So asking that, why did you do that? Well, you, you literally, is that actually, is a big, there's a lot around that. Mm. But if they aren't understanding the emotional side, the social side, mm. even when you tell them this is why you did it, they still mm. won't understand it. You have to drop down to that lower level. Mm. Yeah. And talk them through. Yes. And maybe give them at that time alternatives. Yeah, absolutely. Because a lot of the time the, the behavior repeats mm-hmm. because they probably haven't got the knowledge or the exposures to another way. Alternative. Absolutely. And, you know, when it comes to behavior, often they don't have the language skills to do anything any different. If you if you haven't got the language skills to go, can I have that toy now, please? You know, then what, what have you got available to you? Well, I'm just going to take it then. You know, yes. so it's thinking about it from that level as well. Have they got the actual language skills they need to mediate this situation or not? You know, that's that's really important. And the other thing to understand about questions is in language in general, whatever level a child is at, true of adults too, if, a, if you're feeling emotional, or stress for some other reason, your language processing is going to go down, functionally speaking. So even if your child's quite able, if you're asking them, why did you do that when they're crying their heads off or whatever, then they're probably not going to be able to respond to you, even if they would in a normal time. Yeah. So, you know, sometimes it's about waiting for the emotions to go out of a situation, the child might be able to use their language skills a bit better. Yeah. But, you know, like everything in language development, it's always a bit of a miracle to me that these things happen, particularly developing children without too much outside intervention but each one of these levels can be a huge sticking point for a lot of our children with SRCN to be honest with you so you know when you think about how many questions we use in the school environment to try and pull out knowledge and assess then if you've got a child who's still at that level of learning the names for things then you can see the average classroom is a very dense language environment and to be able to demonstrate your world knowledge with language is seriously difficult so you know, it's for us to reflect on exactly that was a really good example. You know, that we can do the same thing with a lower level of question. Yeah. But it's us to us up to us to reflect on that really. And I just realise it's a lower level. That's the yes. thing. I hadn't yes. realised till I'm looking at this sheet and I'm literally processing it all as you're reading it out and going, Okay, yeah, that makes more sense. So it's quite closed. Yeah. And it sort of opens up. And then the last one is can't get any more open. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So yeah, we need to be thinking carefully about what we're demanding of children all the time, because a lot of the things we think of as kind of either random behaviour or, behave- or, or sort of negative behaviour is actually. So if you know a child can answer a who, what or where question with stuff in front of them, and then they get told off when they can't do that, when they're being asked the same questions about something that happened yesterday, and you see that as a behavioural issue, actually, that makes this perfectly logical from a verbal reasoning perspective. They just don't have that skill yet. Yes. So, you know, children also often get into trouble for things that actually we have subtly increased the cognitive demands of but we didn't realize we were doing that i suppose as a, as a parent level one is really quick and easy you're playing with that child low level yes level two is you're playing with them or oh, can i have thomas a tank engine or can i have the blue one or can i have the yeah. red car or can i have the pink dolly can i have mm-hmm. the yellow horse or whatever you're you're mm. you're still playing in the language development when you get to level three yeah. you're not really in the play mode there you're more asking them to me that's i'm looking at the sort of mm. what happened today how was school yes. that's a end of day reflective conversation i remember with my children it, sometimes you have really had what did you do at school today and the children are always giving answers it's like actually yeah okay so if i, I need to give them the starters Mm. yeah absolutely and that's so if you're bringing it down to a level two so now i'm thinking of this I'm, i've taken the abstraction away so did you play with 
Abby today. Absolutely, yeah. What did you eat at lunch today? Yes. <laughs> it's a level two question. What did you do at school today is a level three question. Absolutely. Yeah, so it's it's bringing that level down and slowly as you sort of, they shape that thing, mm-hmm. they then learn from what I'm asking them, which parts of their day to discuss. Yeah. So then absolutely. it's telling them when they get to that level three, so he's going to ask me who I played with, what I did in English, what I did in maths, and they'll go through mm-hmm. and ask me any big things happened mm. and that then helps them just by doing that thing every day you're building up those level three skills yeah absolutely yeah and then you can ask them okay so what's what's happening tomorrow yeah and you're them so it's those reflective conversations at the end of the day at dinner time yes. or yes. at bedtime can really really help and something you've got to drop down and realizing that actually as i'm asking them specific questions i'm now dropping down to level two mm. that makes a lot more sense as well yeah yeah and the other thing to think about, you know, the whole asking what you did in your day thing is a real classic thing that parents complain to me about all the time that they don't get an answer with. And actually realising that, firstly, those level three things are really challenging for a lot of people. But also we ask them on the car on the way, in the car on the way home often, when children are tired and hungry. Yes. So actually, you know, we're asking quite cognitively demanding questions at a time when actually maybe the processing just isn't there. So maybe a better time to ask that question is another time. And it's, it's, they've also got them what when you're asking how was your day you're asking a very different question reality you're just saying your reality you're being lazy <laughs> saying it in a very short way in reality mm. what you're saying is tell me about your day what did you do then what did you do then who do you have lunch with tell me what happened then you're asking all these questions but you just phrased it as how was your day absolutely yeah my nephew who's got autism i had to help in his ehcp application process and one of the questions was, what do you like about school? Mm. And he got his timetable out. He's got autism. Went maths, computing, geography. Mm. He literally, he, his concept of school was lessons. Yes, yes, yes. So when I asked him how was school, mm. he didn't think about lunchtime, walking to school with friends or anything like that. He thought of mm. lessons. Yeah. So when you're asking that question, how was school, it comes back to what we said at the beginning is, what is the questions they're asking me? Mm. how am i inferring that do i have the ability to sequence all those events and mm-hmm. out basically priority and then do i have the language to share it yes so if they can't do it they can't do one of those things or they might mm. convert to two so it's then picking out and identifying supporting them by dropping down a level yes and giving them that language so here's some starters yes absolutely yeah and we do it with story writing. I see lots of we used to work. Yes, we do. Yeah, we do it well with story classes. writing. Yes. And you have the uh, who, what, where, when, why. You plan out your yes. story. Yes. So we've got all this stuff doing in a written. Now, some of that just might be making up for the lack of skills here. Mm, absolutely. Yeah. There's a reason children can't sequence their thoughts in writing because they can't sequence their thoughts in their spoken language. Which goes back to my very muggle way of saying verbal reasoning is like comprehension it's, absolutely it's... absolutely yeah yeah you know in the end you know uh, having a lot of vocabulary is important but having a lot of single words isn't as important as the ability to link them together and explain things and yes. to use that language flexibly to problem solve you know so we need to think about language as a whole and develop these skills too and a lot of that is about modeling conversations and you know our awareness of the types of questions we are modeling because we ask children a lot of questions but are we modeling other people asking us those questions and what does a response look like as well so you know children ask all those why questions and they'll often start asking why questions before they've got the capacity before they're at level four before they've got the capacity to really answer them but why are they doing that partly so that they can hear what the response to that sounds like you know what does answering a why question sound like so you know you are doing something good for your children's language development when you've answered the 17,000th why question (laughs) I hadn't thought about it that way so they're asking why because they don't know the question they should be asking that they're actually interested yeah i mean it's yeah That's they fair. might well not have the range of different question types in their own language to to kind of get to the thing they're actually interested in and sometimes children ask you why questions because they just want to initiate a conversation with you and that seems yeah. to be a good way to do it <laughs> why have we come here yes actually yeah. okay what have we come to see what is it what's interesting what am i going to enjoy here what am i but that was a nice, simple, it's quite a, a low, it's, it's a short question, 
and it's, it's a great one to ask if you're not sure yes absolutely yeah it's great and it's fantastic way to get adults to talk to you <laughs> yes why 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 is this why that but it's important that people understand that just because a child can ask a why question it doesn't necessarily imply that they really understand the don't necessarily have the skills to answer that level of question yeah so it's important people realize that <laughs> yeah that's quite that's quite interesting and i think what i was thinking about with level four is when children are story writing so i'm mm. back to writing again it's that mm. descriptive language Mm. so when you're writing a story okay so he's driving he's late so i might say as he drove he rubbed his tired eyes Mm -hmm. so i'm thinking about why he's driving i'm thinking about how he's feeling i'm thinking about Mm. all of that Mm -hmm. now if i can't do that in my conversations Mm. i've got to be able to say that to you or infer that because you're rubbing your eyes and yawning you might feel tired Mm -hmm. that's never going to go into my writing no absolutely yeah so we come back to the point that i suspect you've had with every speech therapist who's been on here which is that all those literacy skills grow out of a foundation of spoken language and yeah spoken language is kind of the forgotten area in schools we have we have reading Mm. we have writing we have maths Mm -hmm. another language dense area (laughs) anyone do spoken language yeah I'm yeah. doing I'm doing a webinar uh, next week on the removal of P levels, all about the pre-key stage standards and all that sort of stuff. There's nothing there for spoken language or speaking mm. listening. It's just reading, yeah. writing, maths. Yeah. There's no development. And in reality, if you think about very basic level, every child is born, they observe. They're seeing, they're listening. It's all a lot of receptive. Mm. And they start yeah. making noises and they're doing facial expressions. That's the expressives. And that will come out visually, audibly. So they're sort of, that's recognising symbols, seeing the golden arches, McDonald's. Mm. That's <laughs> the first reading. But that comes yeah. years after the expressive and receptive uh, language, the speaking and listening. Yeah. And then later on, they start doing the mark making. Mm. Yeah, we forget all that we forget and just focus on the reading and the writing if they're not doing that in the spoken language world a couple of years before they're trying to do it in the reading and writing it's really going to have a big impact yeah completely you know there's no when we teach children to do that stuff in writing because you can teach them to do it without the language skills but they they just learn it as a splinter skill and it doesn't really integrate with anything else you know they learn i'm supposed to use this sentence structure here but yes. actually it doesn't reflect a genuine understanding and capacity in their own language skills. So I, I, since my daughter was, she's now in year nine, when she did her year six SATs and it was all the 2014 curriculum and I learned all about fronted adverbials and past tense <laughs> and through what she had to do. And also I was a governor at the time or chair of governors and I was involved with the school a lot and I was year six teacher was deputy head and I spent a lot of time with him. My English skills have come on immensely. And even as I'm just thinking about it now is when I rearrange a sentence, I'm having to work out what is the big thing, which is mm. it's, it's in here. It's these same mm. skills here. It's available reasoning. So when I'm writing a sentence, what is the best, what is the biggest part of this sentence? I need to make sure I don't see that at the end. I might want to mm. start with that. So when children are struggling to rearrange sentences, is it because they're struggling to identify which is the biggest priority in that sentence? Absolutely. Yeah. These are, these are things you need to be asking yourselves. And I think because they're higher level language skills that we're talking about, when you get to level three and four, you're getting into some higher level skills there. And so I think people don't always identify those children as having language issues because they're talking yes. and they're using sentences. And verbal reasoning is a much more subtle and nebulous sort of topic. And I don't think, you know, I think we're quite good at identifying children who aren't talking or maybe those that have got sparse vocabulary, but the ones who can't explain their ideas well verbally, do we think of those as speech and language problems? I suspect a lot of people don't really. They just end up as behaviour problems, maybe. They do. Yeah, yeah. Because if you can't, you know, and thinking about the number of young people in the criminal justice system, if you if you have to go to court and explain what happened and why you did it and you can't do that, then, you know, maybe you can't, you don't have the skills to advocate for yourself. And so, you know, that's why it's important, this stuff. And I think there's a real recognition in early years that this literacy stuff grows out of talk. Yep. And, and I think there's then a lessening understanding of that as they get up through older primary and secondary. That actually, some of those children who are struggling with illiteracy are still going to be struggling with some of these early verbal reasoning skills yeah 
and like, I don't think we're always as good at picking that stuff up. No, I, I can think of in my children's classes various children who would talk a lot, but not necessarily they can't prioritize. So they're mm. saying a lot, so they don't know which bits to say. Yes, and that can also absolutely. see because you're hearing them. Because you're hearing them talk a lot, they haven't got a speech and language problem. Yes, actually, if they're writing, they're struggling. If mm -hmm. they're struggling when they're reading, going back to maths, the the wordy questions, mm. being able to pick out those bits it all comes down to this again absolutely if they're struggling with that but they're talking lots then actually they might have the level one they might have the level two they might be doing some of the level three mm. they can retell everything they have, but they're not prioritizing yes absolutely they're not sort of yeah yeah that's interesting yeah and it's important to know that these are for any child any child without SC, and they are, these are quite difficult skills. So, in typical development, about 60%, only about 60% of three year olds will understand the level one and two question of typical children. Okay. Only 60% of three year olds. So, if you think about some of you, no, to me, classic three year old skill is that kind of, and I did this, and I did this, and then I did this, which is very kind of level three type stuff, you know, but actually 40% of children at three years old actually can't do that stuff. And that's typical development. And then only 65% of typically developing five-year-olds will understand the level three and four question. Wow. So that's children going to, so you think about the kind of questions they get exposed to in primary, typically developing children, it'd be quite typical for a proportion of those children to not be able to retell the story going to school. Yes, that's quite low. It is quite low, isn't it? And it always shocks me a little bit, but it, because these questions are so difficult. That's how difficult they are. And so if they're that difficult for children with typical development, <laughs> think how hard they are for children with SLCN. I suppose this comes down to um, government time and money thing. So, <laughs> uh, reading, writing and maths, you can test them quite simply. Mm. Written, written exam, gets marked, goes off, gets marked somewhere else. Great. To be able to assess properly these sorts of skills takes mm. a lot of time. And it's subjective. Yeah, yeah. And it's complex. So therefore, it's not easy to assess. Mm. So let's not bother. <laughs> let's not make it a priority. We'll just assume it's happening. That's what mm. I would probably feel happening. Look, when I look at and talk to schools and their priorities, always the reading, the writing, the maths. Mm. And generally, I, I talk to schools who never even look at the spoken language assessments. Gosh. And it's reading, the writing, and the maths. Mm. It's, it's a forgotten. We're not interested in that because what the government tells us. This is what all the school, the league tables. This is all. In reality, this is the thing which kind of underpins it all. Absolutely, yeah. And and plainly, sadly, speech therapists have got more work to do to get people to understand that. You know, when we try and develop later skills without that foundation, children can learn to perform, but it's not growing naturally out of a basis of real skill. So, you know, do we want children who can perform for an assessment and tick a box? Or do we want children with the life skills they need to be lifelong learners, you know? When you think about the uh, what causes more issues later on in life, not getting a 100 or a pass at SAT or not having the communication interaction skills. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. It's going to affect every part of your life, your mental health, your ability to get a job and to keep that job, to solve problems in your relationships. You know, that's... That's how important communication skills are. Yeah. And there's certain skills you can catch up on later. Like communication mm. interaction, if you're not there, if you don't have those skills, it's already causing you damage. Absolutely. Yeah. At that point on. Yeah. Much bigger. Cool. So we've talked about levels. We've talked about the different levels of questioning. So I've mentioned that how parents can sort of, what levels one and two is often play-based. Level three is yeah. that reflective conversation, as you said, at the right time. Mm. think about not on the way home from school when they yeah. just need that that calm down time they just yes. need to relax and yeah it's choosing that and i suppose level four is you've got to allow for time for that one mm, definitely that's a, you know these are all skills that continue to be refined and become more sophisticated over time so i think the thing with level four questions is in order to model those questions, those types of questions and their response to children, that takes quite a lot of time. To explain your own reasoning to a child takes quite a lot of time. And oftentimes we don't 
spend that time. You know, we we get to the outcome. We want we want the problem solved. Yeah. And we're not always spending enough time scaffolding that conversation with that child about what the possible solutions are and how we might get there and modeling that language to them. And there's definitely a group of children that I work with who struggle with these kinds of skills. And actually, when you're trying to come up with a program as a speech and language therapist, oftentimes what they really need is exposure to really high quality conversation. You know, we, we come up with these slightly abstract therapy activities, but actually they need good quality conversations, you know, detailed conversations. A lot of our children aren't getting exposure to those. You know, if you're not sitting around the dinner table and having a detailed conversation, if you're not explaining why you're thinking certain things to your child, you know, when they get to the appropriate stage, then actually how are they to develop these skills? You know, because they don't see adults having these detailed conversations. So, you know, just prioritizing conversation and prioritizing the time to explain things properly you know and your own reasoning is really really important it's hard to find in a school environment for sure so as a parent asking them how their day was is, is only half of the conversation yeah because they're literally going i don't know what you're asking me i'm struggling what to say you're picking the question that you're pulling it out mm. the next bit is then you're going well actually at work i did this yeah absolutely. and i'm looking forward to this weekend because we are going here so it's actually yeah. then you modeling actually i talk about how something funny happened on the way to work or i talked about a meeting i had which was really important it went well which made me happy so mm. then teaching the kids okay so he's telling me stuff that made him happy so i could talk about things that made me happy absolutely so it's that yeah. modeling so it is, it's that two-way conversation mm. and it's also one of the things i've talked to a friend about is how your children see you Mm-hmm. so are you someone who just runs around after them and works or are you someone who has interests do you read mm. do you read a book and tell them about it at an appropriate level do you sit there and model them what they should be doing so are you sitting there reading again what are you doing well daddy what are you doing oh, i'm just reading this book it's really interesting it's about this family who go blah 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 whatever mm. but something that actually they can have you're showing them what are you reading you're then modeling yeah. this is how you answer yeah, so, absolutely. So lots of things. It's it's be interesting to your children. Yes, be interesting and interested. You know, yes. take the time. I'm afraid there's not really a shortcut for just taking the time. And life often doesn't leave a big enough gap no. for that. So, you know. You can find time. You can find time. And it's not that you have to be narrating every aspect of your thought process to your children all day. It's just there does need to be a time yeah. to do that. It is, it is very important for, for your children to have that conversation either they're listening mm. generally if you're someone who's always grumpy and you're mm. talking then that your child will pick that up mm. so if it's, it's thinking about almost the whole conversations your children have you're having around your children yes yeah i think it's it, it, something just going off a slight tangent something parents often ask me about is how to help their children develop the ability to tell them what they're feeling and actually and we we often intervene with that with, you know, pictures of emotions, faces and things like that. But actually, how do any of us learn how we're feeling and what the words are for that? Well, by hearing about how other people are feeling. So it's no different really to modelling anything else. We need to model what we're thinking and feeling. Yes. So And make that explicit to our children so they can work out how to do that. So, you know. And I have said, so going earlier when we talked about when something's happened and they're feeling all emotional, mm. wait to have that conversation. And my daughter's dread the daddy conversation that always read it it goes on for so yeah. long but generally i might start high level and end up realizing they're not understanding it and you end up realizing yeah. now i'm dropping down and i'm explaining and then i'm explaining that perhaps they may have seen things wrong and i try and mm. explain situations and then yeah. i'll explain how i felt how that what they did made me feel mm. so that's okay to have feelings yeah. and that they can make me sad and tired or i feel tired or i'm fed up or all mm. this language you sit there and go, mm. when you do this this does have an impact yes yeah. so you're sitting there explaining to them saying i feel sad i feel happy i feel great i've had a great day but it's also actually you can have negative feelings and it shouldn't be mm. you make me cry every day not that sort of stuff but it's yeah. it's sitting there going i've had a really hard week and when i've come home today and you and your sister have just been arguing i don't have any energy to be positive mm. It's, it's giving them the realize actually i've had a hard week too and actually something mm. so it, it's making sure that it's okay to be not always happy yeah 
and to model the language around that. All that you just said, that conversation said, how much language are you talking about? So much language. <laughs> and if you don't have the language, then you can't even begin to do that reflecting process. And it's, it's, it's as I've said, I use uh, this week I've had, and they might sit there and reflect on, well, how's this week made me feel? Mm. And then they might be able to identify something themselves. So there's yeah, mm. a lot going on. That there is. It's one of the things, I've done lots of things, and somehow it's worked. And now as I do these podcasts, I've got experts telling me why it worked. Which is <laughs> Absolutely. You, well, it, our instincts actually often guide us very well with children, but then some of the things we need to do are completely counterintuitive as well. You know, so um, often, yes. oftentimes I spend a lot of time going, oh, if you want a child to do that, you have to do kind of the opposite of your, your instincts on that, actually. And that's, yeah, that's when you need the that expert information to work out when to follow your gut and maybe when some of the things your instincts tell you to do are maybe not the helpful things to do particularly with children with SLCM because they haven't picked up language doing the things that we do most of the time so we have to do something different yeah so that means reflecting on ourselves <laughs> so I always thought when I thought about spoken a speech language therapist it was the physical process of speaking mm. it's, it's no it's huge it is the language it's expressive it's a cognitive it's, it's so much more in there which I've learned yeah. and that you take for granted mm, yeah absolutely until it's like anything in our lives until something goes wrong you don't realize how much complexity there was there yes and how that relates to everything else that's going on for a child definitely so is there anything else parents or schools can do to sort of help develop these skills i think you know like i've talked about another podcast actually getting good quality training on all topics language related is a good start and there are some good high quality general websites out there from some of the big charities like ICANN for example have good quality information if schools are looking for a resource for slightly older children because in some ways the if you're doing therapy tasks on these kind of topics when children are slightly younger and you can use real objects a little bit more these are slightly easier to achieve sometimes if children are still practicing these skills as they get into sort of older primary and adolescence it's a bit more challenging to engineer situations to practice some of these skills so a resource that schools might be interested in is language for thinking which speech therapists use a lot and that has quite a nice little task in it at the beginning that lets you sort of baseline where children are at now and then it has lots of nice resources that you can use to structure a conversation and make sure that you're scaffolding things at the right level for the child because the idea is you don't be asking quite a lot of questions at the level that the child's at now and then just throwing in a smaller proportion of questions that at the next level are modeling how to answer those so language for thinking is a structured resource that will help you do that for older children so a big thank you for coming on the show today thank you for having me i always i always love i love these podcasts I learn so much <laughs> lots of reflective time as well so as Aaron mentioned, all the links we've mentioned, including her guide to the development language by someone called Mr. or Mrs. Blank. Is it Mrs. Blank? <laughs> I think it's a Mrs. I think. Mrs. Blank. Not this. Probably a doctor. Doctor Blank. I think I can't quite remember. <laughs> so all of that I'll be putting in the show notes, so you can go to our website and download them. So they'll be on our website, www.thesendcast.com. Big thank you for listening to the show. Please let us know what you think. Lots of people share our stuff on Twitter, which is great. It's great seeing all the responses. It's amazing. But you can also leave a review on iTunes or email me. Tell me how amazing all my guests are, not me. <laughs> but So you can use us, follow us on social media. So at The Sendcast on Twitter, Facebook, The Sendcast on Instagram, The Sendcast and LinkedIn, just search for Sendcast. And if you want to get in touch with me, let us know your thoughts, suggest topics, anything else. You can send an email to me at hello at the sendcast.com. And if you enjoyed the Sendcast, why not look into the virtual Send Conference? I've mentioned this at the beginning of the podcast. It's a great way to get CPD around SEND. The conference is run by us here at B Squared, and it covers a wide range of areas within SEND. And what makes this conference different to others is you access it across the internet. We run it twice a year. But if you don't have to watch on the day, you can access the content whenever you want, which makes it completely invaluable because you can use it for whole school training, signpost various teachers to it. It is really good value. So you can buy tickets for future or past events. The videos are always available. And the cost for schools for a conference is £60. And I said that that's the whole school, not a person. As a listener to the Sendcast, we're offering a 10% discount just by using the code Sendcast10. 
And you can find out more about that by going to www.virtualsendconference.com. And we have also recently launched Parent Talks. Parent Talks is the same sort of concept, but aimed at parents. So looking at the support parents need, the information you need to support your child. It could be based on transitioning, legal advice, huge range of areas that parents need support and advice on, which isn't always easy to get. So Parent Talks is much cheaper. It's £10 per family. Really trying to make it really good value for money. And an organization called the Seashell Trust have actually sponsored over 100 tickets. So free tickets. If you have a look around, you might still be available. But also keep an eye out for future series of Parent Talks. And to find out more about Parent Talks, go to www.virtualsendconference.com forward slash parents. So big thank you for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of the Sendcast. So it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me.